David, welcome. Do you know Cornwall? Uh, a... No, I've been here a couple of times. Uh -huh. um, I never, never for long enough. But you went to Port Quinn this morning. I went so to walk from all Port, Port Isaac to Port Quinn. Yeah. I You're saw grounded. seals and ca cows and all kinds of <laughs> See cows? Wild no. cows. So, yes, yeah, so beautiful. Wonderful, wonderful. I mean, you, I was just saying just now, you are one of the hardest working authors currently in terms of, of traveling. Um, yeah. But also, I, I suspect you're a publisher's dream because your novels managed to be at once literary, so they, uh -huh. you, know, they, you, you were shortlisted for the Booker Prize, but at the same time, they, they sell shed loads. But also, and I think this is a really mm. interesting point, they appeal equally to men and to women, which yes, is a bit I, of a chimera in I publishing. I mean, it, 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 it's strange. I think probably the readership is about 80-20, but that's quite good. 80 I mean, women to 20. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, so. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Because we know that, that <laughs> an awful lot of men read books their wives buy for them. Yeah. So. But actually, this book has been, this book, it, it's interesting. I think probably the readership for this book has still been 80-20, but probably the correspondence that I've had is 50-50. Right. So I think a lot, of, a lot of men have seen past experiences in there and things that they've related to. And so that, that's been a new thing with this book. Right. And I'm on, I'm on um, Twitter now, which I never used to be. So I, I, I get Welcome on board. I wonder yeah. how long you'll I last. Tr I try to fight <laughs> it. But um, I, uh, I was on briefly when one day came out. And it was so unbelievably stressful. I, I had to get off. But um, I'm back on now. And it's quite benign so far. Well, you, were, you were so polite on Twitter. You, <laughs> you thank every reader who says they like your book. So yeah. please don't all thank them on Twitter because they'll be too busy to write. Well, it's, it's a sort of weird kind of working. You know, you feel as if you're, you're doing something even though you're not actually writing anything. But um, no, this book is, it has had feedback from, from men as well. And that's been great. So yes, it's... But it, it, Sweet Sorrow, the, the new novel. Yeah. It, it is a characteristic David Nichols novel, it seems to me, in that it's shot through with, I won't call it nostalgia, but there's mm. a kind of regret. And, and I'd love you to talk a bit about your approach to time and your plotting, because all your yes. books have this, not necessarily a double, sometimes it's a double, sometimes it's a triple layer. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, so you're telling us a story, uh, we're lost in the story, but at the same time we know from another frame around it that that story is not going to end particularly well. That's right. There's, it's a memory book, really. I wanted to... Well, sometimes when you write a book, you have to cross it off your list of things you can't do again. And very, my very first novel was, like a lot of first novels, a coming-of-age novel, a book called Start of a Ten, which was quite a sort of straightforward comic novel told in the voice of an 18-year-old. And when I, then I sort of been getting older through the book, so the next book was about someone having a sort of... 20-something crisis trying to give up acting. And the next one was about how you get from 22 to 42. That was one day. That was sort <laughs> of how, how aging happens. And, and with us, I thought, well, I've got to stop writing characters who are my age, so I'm going to write someone older. So I wrote some, you know, a 54-year-old character, which at the time of writing seemed like science fiction. <laughs> I could put myself in the mind of a 54-year-old. And then I didn't want to keep getting older, so I, I, I wanted to write a... a a first love story. I hadn't really written about... I, the, us, the last novel, was about love in marriage and disillusionment and love fading. And uh, it was quite a... Um, it was quite a, uh, a sad book because it's sort of a slightly bitter book. I mean, I love it very much, but Well, it's the love a, fades, but the but love the is face. resuscitated. Well, yes, giving away without giving away too yeah. much. Yeah. But it was a book about... And I didn't want to write another book about that. 
So I went right back to the beginning because I'd never really written about first love uh, and it's a particularly unique experience. And I, but I didn't want to write in the voice of a 16-year-old. So it has a framing device. And the last three books have all sort of toyed with time. They've all had a structure. They, they've all been books that I could sort of draw a diagram. I could draw a graph of how the stories work. So us, um, there are two love stories. There's a love story that takes 20 years and a love story that takes three weeks. And they cross just at the end. And then you have the ending um, with uh, Sweet Sorrow. Um, the story is set in 1997, but then the future sort of bubbles up and you find out where the narrator is. And then it carries on in 97. And then there's a longer moment where you find out where the narrator is. And then gradually the present takes over from the past. I read, remember reading Miss Jean Brodie, which for those of you who know it, has these moments where you flash forward suddenly and you find out where a character is now. And it's incredibly jarring and quite exciting to find out what becomes yes, of what them. will die in a burning hotel. Exactly, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, a, so it's that idea that the, the present, you get little clues as to the present and then you realize at the end of the book why the story is being told. So I, before I can write a book, I always have to know what that architecture is going to be. And I think it's also probably something to do with I don't know. I mean, I'm in my early 50s now, and I find that the past is something that I think a lot more about the further... It's not like, it's not like sailing away from the coast. Mm. You know, it's it actually at 50, I think a lot more about being 16, 17, 18 than I did at 30. Uh, so it's something... That, that, that whole business of how do we get to where we are, how do we become who we are, is something that I think a lot about a lot. But on one level, I think all your novels are quite psychotherapeutic in that the heroes seem increasingly in touch with their younger selves, or they're carrying their younger selves around yeah. with them. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of regret. There's a mm. lot of um, uh, sadness, a sense of sort of analysing the past and trying to work out what went wrong. Um, certainly in this book and in, in Us, there's an, there's an element of that. Um, a, a sort of melancholy. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make the book sound miserable. It is a comedy. No, it's, it's very quite, funny. It's quite a it broad comedy. Funny, but, <laughs> but I find it very hard to write comedy without a certain amount of that sadness and sorrow. When I was... The book is about a, an amateur production of Romeo and Juliet. And when I was reading the book, uh, uh, reading the play, reading Romeo and Juliet, I came across that phrase that we all know, parting is such sweet sorrow that I would say goodnight until tis morrow. And the idea that saying goodbye to someone is so pleasurable that you will never leave is, is a, a very Shakespearean conceit mm. and a very beautiful idea. And there's a, the idea that there's a, a sweetness in the sadness of farewell yes. is sort of the governing idea of the book, really. Um, melancholy, I suppose, as a kind of a pleasurable sadness, I suppose, is the, is the tone that I wanted the novel to have. And it's also charged with that particular danger of looking back that Friends Reunited yeah. um, illustrated all too well and broke up a lot of marriages, it which did, is that yeah. your, your current wife or husband can, can't hope to compete with the first love, yeah. Um, yeah. assuming the first love didn't end in a, a fireball. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, I suppose the book is about the kind of the pull of the past and the dangers of the past as well. Yeah, I was. I, when I thought a lot about sort of rites of passage novels, um, uh, books where the past something happens in the past and it casts a shadow. Books like The Go Between or Alan Fournier's mm. Le Grand Monde, Le Grand The Lost Monde. Estate. This idea of people who are sort of haunted by the past and unable to move on until something has been excavated, and that was again one of the one of the governing ideas of the book. Yeah. But do you think it's a particularly male thing to get hooked up 
satisfied or you know obsessed with with but something in in your own past that you haven't progressed beyond because time and again in your books you, you're very good at writing about a particularly hopeless kind of masculinity yeah. um, and several women have said oh that's uh, several women have told me that's half the appeal for them in your books okay. is that you're you write very good women but your men are reassuringly hopeless um, yeah <laughs> well <laughs> now you're going to tell me that autobiographically. No, write, <laughs> write what you know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that all, I mean, the idea of a hero, I suppose, is a, it seems to me to be a, a strange idea, mm. unless the hero is, is, is unheroic. I mean, right. they have to be flawed characters. They have to be difficult uh, people with, who make terrible mistakes. Yeah. I think a lot of the the last three books in particular, with Dexter in One Day uh, and, um, and Douglas in Us and, and, uh, and Douglas Charlie. had a really painful journey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They've all made mistakes, but mm. they're all genuinely, and they're often aggravating and infuriating and annoying, mm. but they're all trying to put things right. You know, they're all trying to mend a relationship. In, in, in Us, it's about someone trying to repair a relationship with their wife and son. And... In, in this book, a, a major strand of it is is a teenage boy trying to work out a way of communicating with his father. And so, you know, they're all people endeavouring to be better, but failing, uh, failing along the way. To a and and I think it's entirely characteristic that in this book, the the two young heroes, Charlie and Fran, she is playing Juliet. Of course, yeah. she's on a pedestal. Yeah. Um, Charlie is not playing Romeo, but playing Benvolio, Benvolio who is the character yeah. with no character. Character, absolutely. Um, when, you know, the best friend on yeah. the sidelines, who then just disappears towards the end of the play. He does. Course. He just stops. I mean, he, he, his role is to come on and tell the audience what they've just seen anyway. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a particular... He's a bit of a sneak. You know, he's, a, he's not particularly... Uh, it, he's not funny. He tries to be funny. He isn't particularly funny. Um, when I was planning the novel, the idea was that it's a... It's a, a very briefly, Charlie is this kid who, uh, he, he's, it's the beginning of the long summer holidays, he doesn't know what to do, he bumps into this girl called Fran, he really likes her, but she's playing Juliet in this production, Romeo and Juliet, and Charlie realises the only way he's going to see her is to become part of the production. And uh, he hates the idea, he thinks acting is silly, he thinks Shakespeare is another language, he really doesn't want to be involved, and that's where the comedy lies. But when I was planning it, trying to work out what the story was going to be. The idea was that Charlie would work up, work his way up through the ranks and become Romeo. And as I started writing it, I thought, actually, that's not the thing to do at mm. all. He needs mm. to be watching. He needs to be slightly at the edge of the action. He needs to be someone who people confide in but doesn't necessarily express their own thoughts and opinions. And that seemed to me to be a more interesting role, to be slightly on the edge of the story um, in, and yet at the centre of the novel. I think it's a very good cue for you to read us oh, a little yeah, bit. Okay. We... Um, now, shall I read a... I'll read a... I want you to read more than once. So okay. This is your first All right. reading. The first <laughs> one. So I will read uh, uh, something funny. It starts with... Um, it starts at a school disco. The, the Charlie's leaving secondary school, so he's 16. Uh, and this is the last day of school. It's set in 97. So um, this Charlie's 38, looking back to the last day of school. And uh, this is the bit uh, in the disco where um, the slowies have come on. The ter that terrible moment. And he's been asked to dance by a girl uh, called Emily. He doesn't quite know what to do. So the song is Careless Whisper. I think that's the only other thing you need to know. <clears throat> I held up my arms and for a moment we found ourselves standing with gripped hands out to the side like pensioners at a tea dance. 
Emily corrected me, placing my hand on the small of her back, and as we began our first rotation, I closed my eyes and tried to identify an emotion. The artificial starlight suggested I ought to feel romantic. The rasping saxophone and awareness of her pelvis and the clasp of her bra should have been enough to spark desire. But embarrassment was the emotion I recognized, and the only longing I felt was for the end of the song. Love and desire were too tangled up with ridicule, and sure enough, at the edge of the hall, my friend Lloyd was waggling his tongue lewdly while Fox turned his back, crossed his arms, and caressed his own shoulder blades. <laughs> I adjusted my right hand so that only the middle finger showed, which seemed pretty witty to me, and we revolved away as the saxophone played on. Say something. Say anything. Emily spoke first. You smell of boys. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's my old games kit. I, it's all I had. I'm sorry. No, I like it, she said, and snuffled into my neck, and I felt a wetness there that might have been a kiss or the dab of a damp flannel. <laughs> Grandmothers aside, I had kissed or been kissed twice before, but it might be more accurate to describe those events as facial collisions. <laughs> the first occasion was in a darkened audio-visual exhibit on a history field trip to Roman remains. There's no reason why anyone should instinctively know how to kiss, like snowboarding or tap dancing. It can't be learned from watching. But Becky Boyne had taken her instruction from Disney fairy tales, pursing her lips into a tight, dry bud that she tapped around my face like a bird getting nuts from a feeder. <laughs> Films had also taught us that a kiss was not a kiss unless it made a noise, and so each point of contact was accompanied by a little lip-smacking sound as artificial as the clip-clop that represents a horse. Eyes open or closed. I kept them open in case of discovery or attack, and read the wall display behind her. The Romans, I noted, had pioneered underfloor heating. And on it went, the tap, tap, tap becoming harder and more insistent, like someone trying to unblock a stapler. Kissing Sharon Findlay, on the other hand, was an angry, open-mouthed, frenzied shark attack. Both of us jammed down the back of a sofa. My friend Harper had a den, a concrete bunker in the basement of his house that held a certain notoriety, and on Friday nights resembled the Playboy Mansion's fallout shelter. Here, Harper presided over exclusive, high-rolling DVD parties, doling out own-brand lager spiked with soluble aspirin, the olive in our martini, to be drunk through a straw and potent enough to send us behind a sofa, kissing amongst the dust balls and the dead flies. I had never been more aware that the tongue was a muscle, a powerful, skinless muscle like the arm of a starfish. And when my tongue tried to fight back against Sharon's, they had wrestled like drunks trying to squeeze past each other in a corridor. Whenever I tried to raise my head, it was ground back down onto the dusty underlay with the same kind of force and motion required to juice a grapefruit. I retain a certain memory that when Sharon Finley belched, my cheeks puffed out. <laughs> and when we finally pulled apart, she wiped her mouth along the entire length of her arm. The experience left me shaken and sore-jawed with two small rips in the corner of my mouth, a third in the root of my tongue, and nauseous, too, from what must conservatively have been half a pint of someone else's saliva. <laughs> but I was also strangely excited, as if after some harrowing fairground ride, so that I wasn't sure if I wanted to do again immediately or never again in my life. <laughs> I'll stop there. Have you had many mes messages on social media <laughs> <Yeah>. from... <laughs> Old oh, girlfriends. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I can't talk about I mean, that. <laughs> that's a, a deliciously funny passage, and it is a very funny book, but it's also 
a deeply romantic one. It's a yeah. book about romance. Yeah. How do you feel? I mean, what, if you have to take a label, and publishers dearly yes. love a label. Yeah. Do you fight the rom... Because you are a romantic novelist. Well, they've all in, had in love the broader stories sense, in, I suppose. But they've all been funny books as well. Yeah. I mean, the last book, Us, I, I, it was uh, often the word romantic comedy would, would come up, and it does come from a certain tradition of romantic comedy, which is someone trying to win, win back their partner. Mm. You know, Douglas is... Uh, it's a marital comedy. It's a marital comedy. It's a comedy yeah. of divorce. Very classic comedy of divorce. At least the first half is. The second half is really about parents and children. Mm. The, 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 um, Connie heads off home and it becomes a novel about a father searching for his son, trying to rescue a son who doesn't necessarily want to be rescued. I mean, is that a romantic comedy? I don't know. I, uh, no, I think they're more... They've become more and more... I suppose as I've got older, they've become more... Uh, about family uh, mm. relationships, I suppose. Um, uh, a large part of this novel, if you add, if you took out all the romantic comedy pages, it would probably be about forty percent of the book, and the rest is concerned with his relationship with his friends, um, his relationship with his father, the breakup. Well, can, of his can we talk about the parents yeah. because that that's a really painful strand in the book yeah. because his parents have had a, a, a bad divorce. Yes, and yeah. his mother has a new partner, and yeah. his father is basically sliding into a, well, is in a nervous breakdown, and Charlie yeah. is sort of his carer, but... That's right, yes. As, he's a, like a lot of teenagers do, he's hiding the facts of that from his friends. I yes, think. he's he, I, I, um, he doesn't really know how to deal with it. He's a carer who doesn't really care all mm. the time. Yeah. You know, he resents it. He doesn't know how to deal with his father's uh, depression. No one dares call it depression. Everyone just says, oh, he's a bit down, he's a bit blue. There's a, an assumption that it's all to do with his circumstances. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't really know how to speak to his father. He doesn't know how to make his father better. And the sadness of that, it takes up a, a, a certain part of the novel. Mm. I wanted to write about depression um, from the point of view of uh, the people around, uh, to write about it sort of compassionately but realistically, about how hard it is to deal with, how hard, how boring it is on a day-to-day -day basis, how frustrating it is to, 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 to not know what to do, not know what to say. And it's the other great journey that Charlie goes on in the book is finding a way to cohabit with his, his, his father, yeah. And, and, and find a way, ideally, to cohabit with Fran or to yeah. get together with yes. Fran. I mean, it's, it's very good at the physical... The sort of obsession with time and space that hits you in the middle of adolescence when suddenly time unsupervised is so precious and yeah. so hard. Um, yeah, I wanted to write a sort of ideal teenage love story, really. When I, when I started writing it, I thought it was going to be a novella and that it would be almost a two-hander and it would just be the conversations that, that Fran and Charlie have and to write them in great detail and to, to try and write a kind of something that was quite lyrical and tender because um, often the love stories I've written have been, you know, particularly in us, it was a very fraught, it was a very sort of uh, intense relationship between Douglas and Connie, but it was quite fraught and, and acrimonious at times. And I wanted to write something that was sort of yearning and tender and to try and write the inside of a, a teenage boy realistically because often what you see is often the bravado and and the sort of the mischief and the noise and 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 you don't necessarily have an awareness of you know the the loneliness and the confusion and the anxiety so the section of the book which is the the love story i hope has a kind of lyricism to it i've which i haven't really written before oh, um, definitely definitely it's terribly moving yeah and, and what i loved as well was the the the, the quite 
discrete parallel with the Shakespeare play. Yeah. Because, of course, if you, if you look at Romeo and Juliet for love scenes, they take up very little space. No, that's absolutely true. A lot true. of the play is actually about family, family mess yeah. and fallout. Um, I mean, if you think about the greatest... I mean, if you took all the scenes that Romeo and Juliet have in conversation, it's probably about three, four pages. It's probably... It's not a lot of... Even the most famous love scene in all of Shakespeare, the balcony scene, they're not talking to each other. They're, they're talking about each other while looking in different directions. Um, uh, Romeo doesn't, you know, there's no lead up to it. It's a sort of this supernatural conceit of love at first sight. Mm. And when they do start speaking, they speak in sonnet form. It's 14 lines. Uh, the conversation around the palmer's kiss is a, is a perfect sonnet. So it's a kind of, in, in Romeo and Juliet, it's not to do with chat and getting to know each other and playing each other's records. It's this sort of bolt from the blue. And I wanted to contrast that with the actual, the strange self-conscious awkwardness of of, of first love in real life. So it's, um, it's a sort of parallel, I suppose, between, between this poetic, idealized version of first, what first love ought to be and the, the sometimes awkward, messy, confusing, tricky business of, of but, but often overwhelming experience of first love in reality. And a bit about learning to act. Do those draw? Because you were yeah, an actor. I was an actor. Uh, well, arguably, yeah. you still are an actor. Uh, uh, well, I speak a lot more than I used to. No, I'm not third spear carrier. I, I mean, it's ironic that as soon as I gave up acting, I was finally called upon to speak out loud on stages. But I was at, you know, I was at the National Theatre for four years, and I had four scripted lines so that's the kind of actor <laughs> I was but I did you know I did watch but at Charlie's age were yeah. you just obsessed at Charlie's with being age, an actor I was one of the kids that Charlie thought was you know a fool to be in these silly plays right. I mean I really loved it and I loved the experience I wasn't a big theatre lover I never went to the theatre I mean uh, this is it's no exaggeration to say that I didn't really see a play until I was sort of 20 mm. I, 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 but I loved being in plays I loved the experience I loved the kind of communal aspect of it uh, the sort of the politics of it, you know, and the feuding and the the, the crushes and the, the romance of it and the, the excitement dynamic, of it. The yeah. group dynamic. And that's what I that's why I think I stuck with it professionally, because I liked being in a company. And um, I don't know if I ever really once or twice I actually found myself acting on stage thinking, I can do this and I'm enjoying it. Most of the time it was it was boring, frustrating, all of those things. But the business of being involved I love because it was a kind of proto-writing really I didn't see how you could write I didn't know what the mechanism or mm. the, the strategy was to become a writer and I would never have dared say I want to be a writer and acting weirdly was the closest I could get to telling stories creating characters and watching really amazing actors is definitely something that I learned from as a writer it was a it was a strange kind of training to, to write, though I didn't realize that at the time. A surprising number of novelists turn out to have been very keen actors when they were at school, and I, yeah. I've often wondered whether it's to do with just a performative sense, but you, yeah. it's what you come to do in your novels is to inhabit your characters and so on, and it's loss of self. Yeah, it's about, you know, often, um, often when you're working on a play, I mean, depending on the philosophy, but there's a lot of stuff in that business of you know who am I and what do I want and what do I need mm. and the so all the questions you're asked in drama class yeah oh yeah. exactly what are you doing in this scene yeah. what's the intention what's your intention is something you absolutely apply as a as a as a novelist um, 
the whole business of I wouldn't write a novel unless I could do... When you're in a play, often you do this thing called hot seating where you have to you know, get into character and everyone else in the company asks you questions and you have to be able to ask, answer them immediately. You know, what kind of, what's your favorite song and what do your parents do and where were you born and all of those mm. things. And I wouldn't start writing a novel unless I felt pretty confident that I could do that, certainly with the principles. Um, I would feel very anxious if I was writing a novel and I hadn't got the name right or I didn't know, you know, what their favorite, what, what they'd be listening to. Um, or, or what they like to eat. You know, I have to know all that before I can start writing, particularly in the first person. Uh, I find writing in the first person much more fluid, particularly with us, because it's sort of, this sounds pretentious, but it's a lot of it is about getting into character, uh -huh. knowing what your vocabulary is, knowing what your, 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 your voice is, knowing the rhythm of your speech, uh, knowing what you're, what you're happy to say out loud and what you keep inside. All of that stuff I need to know before I can start writing. But once I know it, it's like improvising in a character. And I, it comes much more fluidly to me than writing in the third person where you, you have to be this other persona, the novelist. And you don't really have any excuses to hide behind. You have to write well and express an idea clearly all the time. That's so interesting. So was your journey into writing via drama? Did you start by being impatient with the scripts you were having to work on and writing the scripts? Uh, no, I was. Um, I I used to have a lot of spare time as an actor. I mean, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would. Um, I I started getting a little bit of work as a script reader, and I used to. W I was at West Yorkshire Playhouse. The literary department let me read their slush pile, and I, I um, I, I then I started reading for TV and film companies. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I felt I could tell what was good in the script and what wasn't mm. quite working. Mm. And um, towards the end of my illustrious acting career, uh, I, I, I was offered a choice. I could either join the RSC, which was very exciting, but it was the role of Valentine in Twelfth Night, who has two lines. Deeply thankless. Yes, <laughs> the heart my lord hath fled or something, I think. Yeah. Uh, and understudying Orsino for two years. Uh, or going to work for the BBC, BBC Radio to read through the slush pile. Mm. And so I did that. And by that stage, I just started writing scripts for, for all the friends. Friends used to come and see me in plays, uh, terrible productions, and they'd come up afterwards and say, you know, well, well done, well done you, and have you thought about <laughs> writing? <laughs> so eventually I kind of, I, 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 with the encouragement of two particular friends, I did actually start, I used to tell stories about, you know, the other jobs I did as an actor when I wasn't acting, and I turned that idea into a sitcom, a, a sitcom about unemployed actors working in a restaurant, and um, I got paid 200 quid by the BBC, and that was my way in, and that was thrilling because I was being, you know, someone wait, wanted to pay me to write, so no one wanted to pay me to act. So I started, so script editing allowed me to learn more about writing. It's very interesting, because I think, I think your, a lot of your discipline and your storytelling shows that script background, because your, your, your structures are very strong. Yeah, I mean, when you write a script, my first really, uh, the, the first successful writing job I had was working on Cold Feet, uh, which I joined on the third series. 
and wrote four episodes. And with that, you know, they won't let you write the script until you've written the synopsis because you're, you're having to drop your script into other people's episodes and it's got to fit and you have to, you have to service the actors. You make sh have to make sure they're all happy. You have to write in character. You have to write the right, correct mixture of comedy and drama. And so you have to do a lot of planning before you're set free to write a script. And you have to write these deathly story synopses, which are absolutely horrible to write because how do you convince the producer it's going to be an excellent episode without using jokes, without using dialogue? You just have to write a bare-bones structure. But when I started writing fiction, I did this, I had the same thing. I gave my publisher a 30-page chapter-by-chapter synopsis of everything that would happen at the start of the 10. And she'd never really seen a document like this <laughs> and was a bit confused by it because, because um, you know, that's what the novel is. I mean, just yeah, write the novel yeah, and then yeah. we can talk. Just fill in the gaps. But I felt that I needed to know, you know, what was going to happen mm. at each, each. I had to know that it had a three-act structure and that, that, that it was best to hold back this information and that, um, that this should be a told in a letter because that was better than writing a scene and that the, uh, the ending should call back to the beginning and, you know, all of these things. Before and has that I habit stayed writing. with you? Do you continue yeah. to plan that, that Yes, not, not so formally, but I can mm. tell you pretty much everything that's going to happen to everyone before I start writing. Right. And that, that only very rarely changes. I mean, the story I found the story document for one day the other day, and it was pretty close to the final yeah. novel, yeah. Um, because that one in particular was a sort of puzzle. Um, you know, I had to know what was going to happen, not just on the one day, but on the 364 days either side. Um, Us, the last novel, because it was a road movie, it had to, I had to, it was like an, the, the, the structure was like an itinerary. I had to know, you know, what was going to happen in each city and the past had to cross the present both geographically and emotionally, so that had to be planned before I started writing. But all of this is, a, is insurance to prevent me just coming to a dead halt, really. If I know, if I am stuck on something, I know there's always something a little bit further on that I'm looking forward to writing and I can go and do that. Mm. And it means I don't dry. And given a choice, I mean, quite apart from the huge disparity in what you get paid for the two different jobs, yeah. um, if, if tomorrow you started work on one or the other, would you go for another script or another novel? I would think I, um, the thing, if I'm, if I'm in a nine-hour script meeting yes. and the notes are maddening yes. and I'm being told to cut stuff I love, then, of course, you, you long for the megalomania of and writing novel. a novel. Yeah. And the unlimited budget. Exactly. Yeah. There's no yeah. budget in a novel. There's no, uh, there's no running time. You know, a BBC hour has to be 58 minutes. They're not going to stop the news. But a novel can be 340 pages or 310 pages. It, and it doesn't need to... In, 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 in a script, uh, people are always going to say, what does this scene do? How does this move? If, if people can cut a scene, they will cut a scene. So everything has to serve a purpose. That isn't the case with a novel, which doesn't mean a novel can ramble or be boring or repetitive. Uh, and sometimes I read novels and, and my script writer head kicks in and I uh, think, oh, we've had this beat. Yes, you know, yeah. And actually I have to remind myself that that's what novels are like, that it doesn't have to but, be But like there that. are no bad lessons to be learned. No. I mean, the, the script writing lessons are all really valuable Absolutely. for novelists. Like making your scenes all do more than one thing. Yeah, and like start that. coming in a little bit later and leaving a little bit earlier. And, and, um, and never have characters say what they actually mean. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. all of that stuff, that, uh, to answer your question, I suppose what I think is that I l what I love about script writing is the opportunity to work with often very mm. brilliant people in different disciplines, particularly acting. I love what actors bring to a script. Um, but I know that actually as a, as a form of self-expression, the novel is superior because it's just you and you have 
overall power and you can do anything you want. There's terrific freedom. And you get to write all these things that don't really have a purpose in the script because the script is ultimately an instruction manual. It's a, it's a document which shouldn't really have too much description in, for one thing. Uh, there are no, there's no role for the simile or the metaphor in a script. It has to be, in fact, they'll just get crossed out. They don't really do anything. Um, that passage I've just read, if you think about that, and you think about giving that to a screenwriter to adapt, there's nothing in that passage you can use because the two people he talks about are well into the past. So what are you going to do? Are you going to flash back? Why are you going to flash back to them? Just so you can, I mean, the, those scenes aren't necessary. Um, the funniest things in it, the images, again, you can't, I mean, unless you literally cut to the arm of a starfish, you're not going to get the, the joke. There's no real purpose for similes. Mm. And so what are you left with? You're left with the action that's happening in the present, which is a boy dancing with a girl. Well, that's you know that's a line of a script, and it's three pages of prose. And writing the prose is more, it's it's fun. It's a different set of tools, but I really love it. And I'm aware that it's a more direct form of self-expression. And so, if I did have to choose, I'd probably just write fiction. I think they're quite glad. I mean, <laughs> we won more novels from you. But your your adaptation of the Patrick Melrose novels, which yeah. was justly garlanded with awards, was an amazing piece of work because. Those are hugely respected novels, but they're quite rebarbative characters yeah. in them. They're, they're not approachable. No. They don't want you to like them. They don't set out to charm. So on paper, they couldn't be less like David Nichols' yeah. products. And yet you worked your magic. Was, was that enormous fun was it a terrible challenge it was i mean what was great was there was no love story you know there was no, <laughs> yes, rom no yeah, romantic yeah. scenes in it i right. mean we did we did uh raise and there was an element of that but i loved it because it was so different and it was so dark and that it was something that i knew i couldn't write without the books but i loved the books i had to audition for it because oh, when right. the process started I, I was best known for one day and no one was thinking well we've got these dark sardonic books about drug addiction and childhood trauma let's get the one day guy in. <laughs> so I had to go and have meetings and pitch and say what I would do to the, the material, but I really, really loved the material. And, and you did a very clever thing with the structure, I think, in yeah. terms of helping us. Swapping the, the first two yeah, episodes. It gave yeah. us more room for emotional identification. I mean, the big challenge, as you said, with those books is no one says what they mean. I mean, it's, a, it's about a, not just a character, but a society where, uh, where the, the surface is extremely different from what's going on inside and the secrets that everyone holds and and that's what it's about. So how do you get the characters to say that stuff out loud in the script without without betraying their characteristics? So that's that was the biggest challenge. And it wasn't always fun. I mean it was a five year development process and every script went through twenty drafts at least, I would think. There were ninety minute versions and sixty minute versions and it went through three different broadcasters and every time it changed a new executive would have a new take on the material, which would demand a new rewrite because they won't make something they're not happy with. So the development process was grim. Tough. And the advice is always good to go into those script meetings, having decided in advance what you will not let go. Yeah. And what you will pretend is a huge sacrifice. Yeah. So that the executives feel they've got something. I mean, one executive said, you know, swap the f second and first episodes because Benedict Cumberbatch is in it and we can't have a series where he doesn't come on until the second hour. That's what, you know, clearly... And I was furious about that and said, over my dead body. And then I did it, and I thought, well, actually, they've got a point. So even, even when you kick and you scream about notes, often, if I was given the choice, do you want to go back to the previous draft? It's very rarely the case 
that I do. I'm, I, I usually think that a dr every rewrite moves the process on, onwards. But there is a point where you do start to go a little crazy. Um, and to, I mean, I suppose the other thing to say about it, just to answer your question, that is, for me, adaptation is, is, is terrifically exciting because I get a little leg up to write about material that I wouldn't necessarily be able to write about. You know, I did a version of um, Tessa the Dervilles many years ago, and that made me feel that I could write, you know, a little, a little about fate and death, and mm. and uh, and that I could write a little more seriously in my own work. Um, Melrose gave me a lot of confidence to write things that I wouldn't necessarily write if I was starting off myself. So I've, every adaptation I've done, I've got a terrific. Um, uh, it's it's helped my own confidence to to write outside material that I'm comfortable with and to write and to push things a little bit further. I couldn't have written, you know, the father-son scenes in Sweet Sorrow if I hadn't spent all that time working on Patrick Melrose, even though they're both incredibly different. And very excitingly, Us is being filmed, or they finished filming. Is that an adaptation you've written yourself? Yeah, they finished filming last night oh, in 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 Venice. Wow. And uh, it's sorry, uh, Cornwall is no, not quite the same. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather be here. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. And there was a party, uh, but I don't know if it was any good. Um, hanging out, hanging out with John Boyne <laughs> in the long grass. It's nearly as good. I yeah. had some dry roasted peanuts with John Boyne, <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> uh, no, they finished shooting yesterday. I mean, in all seriousness, I'm not just saying this. You don't want to be on set. I mean, it's. Uh, I don't know how much you've been on set, but it's. It's. Uh, well, every time I went on set, I had to write more scripts. Yeah. yeah. The <laughs> actors come up to you, and you you want to give you notes, and mm. that's. Uh, and um, uh, there's nothing to do, and it's very frightening because they're always running out of time, and they're always asking if they can cut things. So I don't tend to go on set, even when it's somewhere lovely. But we're doing that as a four-parter for the BBC. I've written scripts. Um, Tom Hollander is playing Douglas, and he's really, really, really oh, amazingly, yeah. amazingly good. Very funny, very touching. Um, Saskia Reeves is the long-suffering Connie, and she's great. Um, and uh, Sophie Grable from The Killing is playing Freya, for those of you who know the novel, the, the woman that he meets in Venice. And a brilliant young actor called Tom Taylor is playing uh, Albie, the teenager. And how was it revisiting your own material? Because it's a while since you finished yeah. that novel. Yeah. Well, it's strange because when I was writing it, my you know my son is was six when I started writing the book, and now he's almost the age of the character in the novel. Yeah. And um, uh, it, it's strange to go back. I mean, you it's strange to read your own books like a reader rather than a writer, mm -hmm. and to to see it's uh, the novels you write are often the kind of strange form of diary you know they're, they're very much about what preoccupied you at that particular time what you were worried about what was keeping you awake at night you know it often finds its way into the book so it was a little bit like looking back to you know my, my own preoccupations seven or eight years ago yeah. um, and again it was very tricky because um, all of the best jokes are in Douglas's head and there's no reason why for him to say them out loud because that's why you. That's why screenwriters are, are write a lot of best friend characters because the best friend gives an opportunity for the character to reveal their innermost thoughts. Um, whereas, um, you know, in a novel, you don't really need that because you're talking to the reader. You can just tell the reader. You can. A novel is a brilliant way of revealing a character's innermost thoughts and emotions. Whereas in the screenplay, a lot of the battle is finding ways to for the character to express that, and. Um, uh, and so, yeah, we had to cut a lot of really good stuff, uh, which is painful. Just putting lines through page after yeah, page after yeah. page. 
but it's uh, it's part of the job. And I was a screen because I was a screenwriter before as a novelist. I know that that's necessary. Wonderful. I think we should have one more reading from you before, oh, yeah. before I throw you to the mercy yeah. of the audience for okay. questions. Uh, I mean, I wanted to. I suppose I wanted to read something just to emphasise that it is a it is a love story because that first bit is so filthy and and gross. So <laughs> I thought I'd read from a chapter called uh, actually called rather embarrassingly, called Love. So here we go. <coughs> I mean, this the, it, it really isn't a spoiler because you know that Fran and Charlie get together, but Fran and Charlie have got together, and uh, here it is. Um, love. But love is boring. Love is familiar and commonplace for anyone not taking part, and first love is just a gangling, glandular incarnation of the same. Shakespeare must have known this, Take a copy of the world's most famous love story and pinch between finger and thumb the pages where the lovers are truly happy. Not the build-up that precedes it, not the strife that follows, but the time when love is mutual and untroubled. It's a few pages, a pamphlet almost, the brief interlude between anticipation and despair, the confidences and intimacies of new lovers, the formation of private jokes, the confessions of doubt and insecurity, the reassurances and vows, there's only so much of that stuff that anyone can bear. And if Shakespeare ever did write the scenes where the lovers talk about their favorite food or pick the fluff from their belly buttons or earnestly explain the lyrics of their favorite songs, then he was right to exclude them from the second draft. <laughs> the beginning and the end, the anticipation and despair, that's where the story lies. But the state of being in love, and in particular of being young and in love, is like listening to someone describe their parachute jump or their bizarre dream. It's the blurred photograph of a life-changing performance taken from too far away. The more intense the experience, the less inclined we are to hear about it. And while we're happy that their life was changed and it must have been thrilling, can we move on? So, best to assume that when we were alone and we weren't talking, then we were kissing or fooling around. And this was all amazing, so much so that I couldn't comprehend why grown-ups weren't doing it all the time. Something, I suppose, that we all spend the rest of our lives discovering. Assume, too, that when we stopped long enough to talk, these conversations were all more open and insightful, free-flowing and intense, funny and serious and profound than any other conversation that has ever taken place. Not just talking, but really talking. Assume that we were funnier than anyone we'd ever met. And the time when I made Fran laugh so hard that she wet herself was one of the proudest moments of my life. <laughs> Assume that nothing was felt in a half-hearted way, whether passion or anxiety, desire or fear, Assumed that we made compilations and liked each other's music fiercely, and if not, pretended to. That we listened solemnly and silently to Nick Cave and Scott Walker singing about us, Nico and Nina Simone auditioning for the song that would be our song, the song that made us cry, and that other behavior previously thought to be silly or repulsive, holding hands, aggressive public kissing, the passing of chewing gum from mouth to mouth, lost its queasiness. Assume that we never wanted to be anywhere else or with anyone else, that time apart was time wasted, and that it was impossible to imagine the circumstances when we might not feel this way. There's some of this to come, not much more than a pamphlet, and it can't be helped. The greater part of it will go unmentioned, but also unforgotten. We now have a slight yeah. technical interlude okay. while we free up the roving mic for the first okay. audience question. If you have a question, please put up your hand and wait for the microphone to reach you 
so that our podcast can have you as well as David. Hi there. Hello. Um, well, I, we're great fans, my, oh. s- my daughter and I, of, um, of one day. So yeah. she's quite jealous that I'm here and she isn't. <laughs> she okay. can listen to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she can hear it, can't she? Uh, but, um, as I say, I've read Starter for Ten, which I found very amusing in that kind of the pathos, um, you know, and comedy mixed together. Um, I'm currently reading um, Us. Yeah. And my husband keeps wondering why I'm chuckling at night. And I said, you've got to read this book because I think he's going to enjoy it a great deal. So I look forward to reading Sweet Sorrow. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) Can I just ask quickly, did you have your first uh, draft accepted by a publisher? Or oh. did you have a lot of rejections? Because that's often... Well, yeah, I always feel a bit embarrassed talking about this because I had a very smooth pros- journey into it, really, because I was working on Cold Feet at a time when Cold Feet was the most successful show on British television. So what happened, very briefly, um, I was writing these episodes of Cold Feet and, and they were getting noticed and I was offered a chance to do my own TV shows. So I wrote a show for the BBC called Rescue Me and I wrote a show for ITV called I Saw You. And I was very proud of both shows, and they both didn't do very well. <laughs> and so suddenly I was out of, out of a job, really. I mean, I, they were both on at the same time, and were both getting disappointing ratings. So I, I got a kick in the head twice a week for six weeks. <laughs> and it was horrible, really horrible. And after that, I, I had a bit of a slump, and I didn't really know what to write. And I thought, well, what's the, what are you passionate about? And I'd always wanted to write about the experience of going to university and how it changed my life and how difficult it was and how out of place I felt and and to write a fictional version of that but there was a kind of law from above that you can't put students on television or in film in Britain that that it's not something that audiences want to watch so I knew it wouldn't work as a tv show and so I just started to make notes for what I thought would be a kind of monologue like almost a dramatic monologue and I um, showed them to a friend of mine Rowana who was the script editor and I said I don't know what to do with this voice and this story and she showed it to her friend who was an agent who took me on and because I suppose because the publishers knew they could put you know from a writer of cold feet on the cover it was read quite quickly and so I'm afraid I you know I'm almost embarrassed to say I, I didn't have that submissions process because because I had a certain because I was able to piggyback on the success of Mike Bullen's show Cold Feet, which I didn't write or create. And so I was very lucky in that respect. But it was still, it still came out of, you know, a kind of place of adversity of really the end of my TV career. Um, so uh, it was one of those things that at the time seemed quite bruising and career ending, but actually turned out to be a positive move, really. It's a, a sort of double-layered question. You okay. mentioned uh, enjoying theatre yeah. uh, when you were a teenager. Yeah. Um, so I want to know what what were the plays that okay. you found you know that really engaged you? But do you think that that kind of environment, the camaraderie, the kind of intoxicating atmosphere of being part of a, a theatre group when you're a young person, is that is that unique, or do you think people might acquire that from other kinds of 
institution. So like yeah. you kind of embrace some people, it might be the army or it could be a boarding school environment that they really love. I mean, what, what do you kind of have a sense of what it is that kind of really draws you in? I've had that yeah. experience. I yeah. loved it. I'm I not an actor. <laughs> I mean, for me, that experience is, I mean, I'll start with the second bit first. For me, that experience has always been to do with, uh, with the arts, I suppose, in the broadest sense, you know, being being in school orchestras and choirs and and drama, you know, doing drama at school, and that's why, you know, I went to a very normal, comprehensive, and but art was, you know, definitely part of the curriculum. You could, you, you, we all did drama and we all did music and we all had those opportunities, and so I'm I'm disquieted by the the, the, the emphasis that's now coming in, the, the way that the arts in school, in every school, state schools, are slightly under threat and undervalued because. Even if it's not about training, you know, the trombone players of tomorrow, it's about the experience of working with other people your own age, having a, a learning a certain amount of discipline, but also learning the pleasure of creativity in a group, and all of those things. Even if I hadn't gone to gone on to be a writer, I would have remembered very fondly and cherished. So, for me, that that business of being creative, as part of a, a, a group of your contemporaries who don't necessarily want on want to go on and do it professionally, is hugely valuable and something that we need to keep hold of and fight for mm -hmm. um, and I feel like uh, well, I mean as to the parts I played well I was always in productions of Midsummer Night's Dream that's pretty much the only play I ever did I was a terrible puck at 18 um, <laughs> and I played Demetrius and Lysander and Peter Quince and everything. You know, it's the only play I ever did. And when I, when I was, um, when I was a professional actor, I only ever auditioned for Benvolio and Romeo and Juliet. I never got, you know, the meaty parts. But yeah, I was a, I was a, a the, the best performance I ever gave in all of my entire acting career was, I was cast as um, when I was at the National Theatre. I was cast in a production of The Seagull playing Russian peasant number two. And <laughs> what I had to do was run on stage and nod at Dame Judi Dench and run off. And that's all I did. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in a pair of long johns, there's a bit where, th where they all have to go swimming in the lake. So it was just a pair of long johns, like that, <laughs> and then off. And, uh, but I was understudying Constantine in that play. And it was an, um, it was an amazing cast, you know, Bill Nye and Judi Dench and Helen McCrory. It was a really extraordinary company. And uh, and I learnt the role of Constantine, and it was one of the few parts I could play quite well, certainly much better than Puck. And uh, and if anything had ever happened to Alan Cox, the actor who played it, I'd have been on the Olivier stage at the National Theatre acting with Judy Dench, but it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and the only time I played it was in an understudy run, because when you're in a theater, National Theatre production, you get to do one performance in costume on stage. So I I did play that part, but to an empty auditorium. <laughs> Oh, and not to Judy Dench, presumably to no, another. No, she came to watch it. Oh, she watched it. Yeah, she came to watch it. Do we have a question from Bevy? Thanks very much. I love the book. Thank you. Thank and my you. sweet sorrow happened in 1977. Ah, okay. And there was a soundtrack <laughs> to that summer love. Um, which has stayed with me forever. And you mentioned Careless Whisper. Yeah. And you also mentioned music in the yeah. second uh, reading. And I wonder whether every novel you write has a soundtrack. And do you listen to it while you're writing? Um, I don't listen to it anymore. Uh, I, I mean, I don't listen to I used to, when I wrote One Day, because I wanted One Day to be like flicking through a photo album. I wanted you to think, yes, 2003, I remember that. 96, I remember that. 92, I remember that. And I found the easiest way to recall those moments very vividly was 
not through looking at news headlines, but was through looking at the Radio Times and listening to music. So there were chapters in one day, like there's a, there's a chapter where Dexter goes to a nightclub, has a kind of very classic late 90s nightclub experience, which is slightly soul-destroying. And I wrote that longhand with, pe on pen, with pen and paper with pounding music playing, and uh, just one draft. And um, when I wrote Start of a Ten, because it's set in the 80s, I did listen to a lot of the student music I listened to at the time. I don't do that anymore. I mean, partly because I find that I can't concentrate anymore. Uh, and so if I do listen to music, I listen to, when I was writing this book, I got into the habit of putting on the, um, the Well-Tempered Clavier, books one and two. If you put it on, it starts very gently, and you can start writing, and a good morning's, if you get through both books, that's a really good morning's writing. And ideally, if you're writing well, you won't notice when it stops, and you'll keep going. So now I listen to classical music, usually keyboard music, Bach keyboard music. And, but I do, if I need to summon up a time and place, I do put on particular tracks. And part of the inspiration for Sweet Sorrow was a really fantastic, beautiful pulp song from 1984 uh, called David's Last Summer, which is a spoken word track about, about um, the leaves changing and the end of a love affair and being a teenager in love and, and was pretty much the mood I wanted to get into the book. So that was something that I drew on without listening to it all the time. Um, and there are, you know, there's, a, there's definitely a mixtape for one day. It's on Spotify. And there will be for Sweet Sorrow as well, of music from 97. But I don't use it in the same way that I used to because something's happened to my my. It's my called brain. fatherhood, probably. I think probably it's that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, lyrics are like, so it's like someone whispering in your ear while you're trying to write. I, I can't mm. do that. Mm. But I, I have in the past, yeah. The only exception is us because Douglas in us is someone who doesn't, who feels slightly removed from art. And he, he, the only music he ever listens to is Mozart as a kind of, just to calm himself down. He'll go off in his car and sit quietly and listen to Mozart arias. But he, doesn't, he feels that there's a bit of a barrier between him and music. So with that book, there's no soundtrack. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, audio books, yeah. and uh, I've, I've actually listened to all your all your books ah. uh, on audio. Great. And I just wondered how much input you have into your, into into those books, and perhaps whether you'd like to narrate one yourself one day. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, a little bit of me used to get think, why didn't they ask uh, me? <laughs> <laughs> I was at the National Theatre for four years. <laughs> you know, but then I remember that I, you know, I can't do the voices, and I tend to, the only note I ever had as an actor was do less. So you know, I, I would really ham it up and do too much. So I don't mind not doing it myself. Um, I do have a certain say, yeah. I mean, the, the audio book of Sweet Sorrow, I think, is particularly good. It's Rory Kinnear reads it and is really mm. brilliant. But I can't, I can't listen to it. I mean, I have to confess, I don't listen to them because hearing your own work read back is quite a, you know, it's quite an exposing feeling. You, 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 you hear things that aren't quite right and things you'd like to fix, and of course it's too late. But, um, but I, I, do, I do always go along, and um, they did a Sweet Sorrow on, um, as a book at bedtime, with James Norton reading it. So it was interesting that there were two different voices, mm. both of them really, really, really good, but with a different take. Because even when you read a book, when you read a book out loud, you are interpreting the book. You're giving it a particular flavour. And, and um, it was interesting to me that I only ever heard snippets, but that they 
both had such a different interpretation of it. The hard thing about Book at Bedtime is it's only about a fifth of the novel. And so it's a particularly painful listen because not only are you hearing yeah. your own writing mistakes, you're waiting for the jokes that have been cut. And so I couldn't listen to that. But I also rec but I'm also delighted that they're there because they're not, you know, they're not for me, they're for the uh, for other people. And and a good audiobook is can be really transportative. Is that a made up word? It is transporting. Now. <laughs> oh the only the, a big exception is that when I was writing Patrick Melrose, I, I found that reading the books over and over again, I, because I knew them so well, I I'd sort of couldn't really take in the words on the page. So I listened on my phone. I had all of the audiobooks um, uh, read really brilliantly by um, Alex. Um, it's going to come to me in a bit, but re really, really well read. And for years, I mean, literally years, I'd walk around London listening to the audiobooks on a loop mm. until I felt that I'd, uh, that I'd sort of absorbed the books completely. And uh, Alex Jennings yeah, reads them really yes. brilliantly. And so um, that was a big help. I think we have time for one last question. How about the very front row? Hi there. I've read, um, I think, all of your books now. You. And I just finished Sweet Sorrow last night, and I loved it. Thank I you very it much. Great. Thank you. And I just love the fact that you read um, you know, about the, the, the kissing of the Sharon and all this yeah. sort of thing. It was just fab. Thank you. Um, I just would like to ask you how much of the teenage you, you've talked a little bit about yourself as a teenager, was in Charlie and okay. in the relationship with Fran as well? Uh, I mean, the relationship with Fran, sadly, is all made up. I mean, it would have been, as I said, you know, I wanted it to be a sort of ideal experience in lots of ways, to be exactly what Charlie needs at that time of his life. He's sort of saved by Fran in, 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 in some ways. Uh, there's no real life Fran. And I spent my 16th summer working in a coffee percolator factory, making, screwing the base plates into coffee percolators. There was no play, no first love, nothing like that. <laughs> and and the, the other, uh, the, the, the actual nature of Charlie, again, often I, I'm inclined to write away from myself. So I was quite a kind of, um, I was a bit of a swat, really. You know, I liked being in the school play. I was quite good at exams. Um, I was one of the kids that Charlie would have, Charlie and his friends certainly would have teased. Uh, one autobiographical element, I suppose, is the relationship he has with his friends, because even though I was quite swatty, I was in these very aggressive male friendships, like constant name-calling, constant cruelty and meanness, and in a way that actually I feel quite sad about looking back and shocked by and some of that is in the novel I think this terrible way we used to talk to each other even though I really loved them and we were a very tight group of friends I think there was something toxic and poisonous about the way boys at that age can be with each other less so now I think but certainly this is 1982 it was it was really aggressive and and horrible yeah I mean that a retired teacher and I, I just could see so much of that sort of behavior even today yeah you know and I mean, that was that was really well done I think you know we did love each other I don't know why we did it and, and all it would have taken is someone to say no we've got to stop doing this you know if it's someone's birthday you know you, you could you could either you know pull down their trousers and tie them to a lamppost or you could give them a present and be nice <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that, not this. But no one ever did. You know, we just went at each other like this. And, and I think some of my regret about that is in the book. Um, but no, not a lot. I mean, 
I think the relationship, I had a, uh, it was a difficult time for me and my father because we, because I went in, in a particular direction that he didn't really understand and we didn't really communicate and it was a bit of a breakdown. Uh, so there's a little bit of that, but no, I was quite different from Charlie because otherwise I think, you know, I, 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 I always make a conscious effort to go in a different direction so that it doesn't become um, memoir, that, that there is an, an act of imagination and empathy involved in the writing, uh, and, uh, because otherwise the, all the books would be the same, rather than sharing characteristics. I don't mind the latter, but I, I do mind the former. I want there to be variety in the characters. They're certainly not the same, and we can't wait for the next one. Please Thank join me much. in thanking David Nichols. Thank you. Thank you.